underground. start to crack. I stare even harder, but it's not me that's looking back. I see a five-year-old child with a black swollen eye. He finds it hard to look up at me, and, and all he does is cry. A split lip, a broken arm. It looks like he's been fighting. It's obvious he lost the fight, and now he's really frightened. I want to help protect him. I ask him, please let me try. But he says the man who did this is a bigger man than I. Great big arms, great big fists, full of God-led rage. It's just that I've been bad again. It's, it's in that Bible page. Tell someone, anyone, someone that you trust. Tell the truth and do not fear, for this is so unjust. He then looked up at me and forced a painful smile. Shh. It's best that I keep quiet now. He's sleeping for a while. Looking in the mirror, it gains a single crack. As I realise the crying child was me just looking back. Looking in the mirror, I see another crack. A child of six with frightened eyes is now who's looking back. Shh. Can you hear the voices? Can you hear the screams? My mother isn't well right now. She's crazy, so it seems. It's not her fault, the things she does. The rubber hose and rope. The voices make her do it. Without them, she can't cope. She says she wants to love me, but I am evil in God's sight. Those voices say I'm worthless. I suppose they could be right. I want to run away now, I'm, I'm ready to defy, but every time I argue back, she then decides to cry. Tell somebody, anybody, someone that you love, but he's been praying hard for rescue from angels from above. He then looked up at me and gave a mighty sigh. They haven't come to rescue me, no, no matter how I cry. The mirror gains another crack. I want to let it be. I look into this frightened eyes and realise it's me. Looking in the mirror, another crack appears. A child of eight and so depressed looks older than his years. I want to ask him now how he's doing and why he looks so blue. The angels never came for him. He's not sure what to do. Men of the cloth with crosses came. A laying on of hands. They said he had to let them in. It's what your God commands. If he told his father, they said he'd go to hell. He held another secret. Dad was doing it as well. The pain involved, the force it took. I wanted it to stop. I'd reached the final breaking point for death. 
this life I'd swap. Tell someone, anyone, someone that you love. There seems no point in praying hard for angels from above. He then looked up at me. His shoulders gave a shrug. There's just no one for me to tell. There's no one that I love. The mirror gained another crack. I wish I had the key to release the child from suffering, but I recognise he's me. Looking in the mirror, another crack appears. A child of twelve so broken, yet still he perseveres. I've spoken up, and now they tell me everything is finished. And yet the pain of dirty deeds I feel is not diminished. Shh, quiet now. The deal has been done. If not, they could do much worse. Despite the fact I took the stand, I'm still easy to coerce. He said I'll take these memories and lock them in my vault. I don't want any trouble now. It's probably all my fault. So much to bear for one so young, so long and bended knee. I couldn't look him in the eye or unchain him to be free. Tell somebody, anybody, make them pay for what they've done. It never can be over if, if all you do is run. The mirror gained another crack. Offenders get off scot-free. I knew inside, in that deep dark place, it was really only me. I looked inside the mirror today and not a single crack. I look hard at the reflection, only me just looking back. Tired of looking, the worse for wear, Feeling so downcast, an honest vision of who I am with no ghosts from the past. I ask myself, are you still there? You should have gone by now. Every day is a struggle, but I muddle through somehow. I question motives every day. Should I go on and why? Most days, but not yet everyone. I'd rather live than die. The ghosts of the past have gone now. For a short while, all is still. I know that they'll be back soon, and all against my will. The road ahead is frightening, and to any man is daunting. I need to find peace of mind from this daily haunting. But behind the pain and suffering, a clown full of wise cracks. In reality, though, an aging man who caused the mirror cracks. I walk away, my reflection stays, from the other side it stares, it's still looking for love, compassion, and someone who really cares. Hello, you are very welcome to another segment of On Air and Aware, where I offer a cup of tea and a cosy chair to discuss issues with members of the Deep Underground through their poems. I'm Ethan, and if you don't know who that strong Scottish accent belongs to, may I ask, where have you been hiding? But more importantly, I have managed to rope in the kilted giant that is David McLeod to discuss his journey and experiences with post-traumatic stress disorder through his poem, The Mirror Cracked. David, you're very welcome, and how are you doing today? And thank you for joining us. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing OK, doing fine. It's kind of strange during these COVID times where the answer fine has now been replaced, certainly here in Scotland. 
So when you say to somebody, how are you doing? The new answer is always surviving. <laughs> it's, it's quite a turn up. Seriously, there's like so many people. Or they either say surviving or oh, just plodding away. It's like yeah. that downward reaction to it. So, yeah, but, you know, I'm surviving and plodding on, so I'm fine. I'm all right. Well, it's good to know you're plodding along. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a bad metaphor, but, you know, due to the fact I can't plod, but there you go. That's, just, <laughs> that's a different issue. Yeah. Just to get an idea of the mirror cracked, which we just heard, which is absolutely fantastic, by the way. Could you share the driving force behind this poem with us? Um, it's twofold, right? So it's, if you like, uh, an autobiographical expose of my life from five until 13, which in itself was, for want of a better word, horrendous. And then the, the other main force behind it was to it's quite strange that I find lots of people don't tend to understand PTSD Mm. um, or its effects you know I think people have been brought up with uh, a movie version of PTSD where Mm. you you have like individual flashes of um, war etc but it's, it's really not like that so it was really to give people a perspective on what PT, PTSD is actually like and then possibly, you know, raise a discussion on what we can do about it and what helps, that kind of thing. Mm. So I don't want to come across all preachy, but it, was, it would hopefully affect people. That's, that's one of the main driving forces behind it, mm. you know, in, in some shape or form. I always think the poetry without the reader having some sort of emotional reaction to it is is not real, not really poetry. Mm. You know, whether it makes you angry or whether it makes you sad, you know, as long as that emotional content or laugh, you know, it, it doesn't have mm. to be dark or dire. Do you feel like with PTSD? I mean, this is just off the cuff, by the way. Yeah, do you yeah. still think? Do you still think like with PTSD? Do you think people, well, when I say people, I mean society, do you think they still sort of kind of relate to PTSD in terms of, like, people in the forces, bit like, yes. served, served their, like, country and things yeah, like yeah. that? You, mm. I mean, the, the problem was PTSD came from the um, the root term of shell shock. Mm. So shell shock had a, a linguistic um, process that went through over time. And what it's ended up with is PTSD, because at one point, the only people that seemed to suffer PTSD were people in the military. Mm. And um, God, that's so, so not right. It's not not true in the slightest. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's there's far more people. I mean, this is statistically speaking, there's far more people get PTSD from things like um, medical trauma. Um, a knock on the head, various things like that, you know, like um, epileptic fits. There's various, various causes for it, you know. So, 
Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a misconception. It's, I think it's very prevalent, and sometimes people I think use it to, in a sense, be dismissive of it. Mm. You know? Because usually nine out of ten times, because I don't really talk about it that much with people that I know in real life, nor have many of them read any any of my poems about it. They've got this tendency to, you know, if they ask, you know, how the the, the amputations and stuff affected me, I, I say, well, part of the result was was PTSD, and then they'll do it automatically. The question follows as, um, were you in the military? Mm. And I'm like, well, apart, apart from the Salvation Army, I, I don't think I was actually in the military. So, you know, uh, and they seem to be quite dismissive of it. Mm. Some people, you know, they, they seem to be quite dismissive. So they have to be led by science. That's the thing. And um, all the scientific literature proves that it's affected by so many things. Mm. But it certainly can be brought on by so many things, you know. So it's a pity PTSD has its um, linguistic origination in the term shell shock, but that's where it comes from. Because I've often, I often find like uh, with P- when, uh, especially you know, like on TV, like when they talk about PTSD, it's always about somebody who is like obviously served in the army or like the military or the, or the uh, navy or something like that um but i find that, that it doesn't get covered by other things yeah. like you know i mean how many movies said. how many movies do you see for instance where it's it's obvious somebody's suffering from ptsd and flashbacks and it's all military related god tons <laughs> yeah it's just like you know I, I know people in the military, no doubt that they suffer from that, you mm. know. Um, but it's there's there's so much more to it, unfortunately. Yeah. Because the theory would go, well, if you weren't in the military, then you can't have PTSD. Do you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. It's a it's a crazy concept that people have. Yeah. But it's, it's it's been led by you know filmmakers and and, and media because as you say they tend to if they want to if they want to talk about PTSD then the first protocol they go to are soldiers. We can thank the uh, film industry for for bringing out this misconception about PTSD. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I blame Hollywood. Yeah, blame Hollywood. Yeah, I blame Hollywood for lots of things. So there you go. <laughs> what I admire about this poem is that it's literally an internal dialogue between a man and a child who takes on a life journey through words. Yeah. How long have you been dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, it's almost, in fact, it's, sorry, it's slightly over now, nine years. Mm. Um. Despite the fact that the childhood I had, I managed to bury over, I don't know, best part of 50 years, 40 years, sorry, 45 years, yeah. I managed to bury, um, or in the main, bury the effects that, that, that it had on me. Mm. Uh, 
what happened was I went in for a heart bypass. And again, I wasn't warned that there was a danger. But what happened was, uh, and I found this out from the theatre sister about five days after the operation, um, because you're given drugs that, that make your, your mind basically blank for the whole period of the surgery and the intensive care stuff. Um, so this um, nurse, this uh, theatre nurse came in to visit me about five, four or five days later. Um, and she came in and her first line was, oh, you were lucky. I'm, I'm glad you're still around. And I'm like, okay, so what happened? And she said, and it was actually a really casual way that she said it. She said, mm. you woke up three times during the operation. And one of the times you woke up, your chest was fully open. Now, I don't remember that. I don't remember it at all. Because obviously, as I say, the, the, the drug cocktail that they give you mm. uh, means that you don't panic in situations like that. Um, or or you don't panic afterwards. So that that's where it stemmed from. It was, it was straight after that operation, virtually straight after, that I started noticing um, flashes of hist- historical things, flashes of um, certainly most of them of childhood, mm. um, which, and, and to be honest, it was always unpleasant memories of childhood. So, yeah, yeah, but that's that's where it all began. I think I'd be mortified if I woke up. <laughs> yeah. I think he would be, and could, the funny thing was, I spoke to the surgeon, this was before the operation, and I said, um, okay, so what happens if I'm in intensive care, um, and I wake up, and uh, let's say I have a panic attack, or I have, you know, just, just a panic episode of it being wired up and being, you know, lines and stuff in and out of my body. Um, and he said to me, don't worry about it. And I'm like that. I said, no, no, I wasn't. I, I tend to be a difficult patient. So I said to him, you know, no, no, I do worry about it. I said, that, in fact, that's that's about one of the main things that I fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, you could wake up and panic, but you're never going to remember it. So don't worry about it. And I said, to a large extent, that did actually pacify me a wee bit. Mm. You know, because obviously if, if you, you wake up in panic, as some people do, it's straight out of surgery. Um, if it doesn't affect you and it doesn't kill you, then, you know, at the end of the day, um, you don't remember it happening. So, yeah, it's a bit strange, but there you go. It's part of life's rich tapestry. So PTSD is almost definitely controlled by the subconscious. I mean, that's pretty... You say strange. I would say that's quite strange and pretty scary. Yeah. And you're pretty brave. <laughs> well, yeah. I think I think because technically I didn't go through it, uh, I would question the term brave as far as that's concerned. You know. Well... Uh, there's there is some brave things that I've done, but you know, the the heart bypass was probably not one of them. Well, you may not remember it, but I think I'm still brave. So. Oh yeah, yeah. When I think <laughs> when I stop to think about it, you know that that would be really, really, really scary. But when I try to think about it, it doesn't register that it happened to me. Mm. So 
it's, it's kind of an odd thought process that, that, that makes me deal with that, you know. Mm. But as I say, from the very start of my recovery period, um, and it was only very slight initially, um, so there, there would be flashes and, and two or three nightmares. But as I say, it wasn't really, I would, I would say it wasn't really that significant, not compared to what it's like currently and how bad it actually got. So. And in terms of like, if you can and you're able to, like in terms of like post-traumatic stress disorder, how would you, how, uh, you know, if you can, how would you describe it? Ah, you know? Well, this is this is the question that that really well it doesn't bother me as such because obviously that's that's the, the poem actually does actually illustrate that. Mm. Um, I have a personal opinion about PTSD, mm. and I have a name for it. And, and it may be a name that's triggering to some people, because mm. uh, I, I know some people were triggered from that when I refer to this as this is PTSD in a poem, um, and so I refer to it as the mind rapist, okay. which is harsh for 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 other people to understand it. Basically, the the, the episodes of PTSD um, is technically your subconscious taking complete control, and I mean complete control, um, and effectively it holds you there. It's almost like, you know, if a thought comes into your head, you have the ability to shake your head and right, say, I'm not going to think about that. Well, what PTS does is it says, here's a thought, um, or here's, here's an event, and, and you try, almost try initially, just once to shake it off, and it, and it goes, no, no, sorry, you're going to you're going to witness this, you're going to go through this, mm. um, and the reality of, of of the dreams or the flashes, um, they're actually so realistic, and it's been like taken back to that particular time, so you believe it or not, you can hear the sounds, feel the pains, um, even smell the smells. Mm. It's kind of weird that it's such, it's almost like probably the most vivid dream you've ever had. You know what I mean? So it's it's definitely very much like that and and you don't get an option. Mm. So that's why I refer to it the way I do. Yeah. So, and there's nothing, technically nothing you can do about it. Certainly, I haven't found that there's anything really that you can do about it. Mm. It's just there, like luggage, you know. But it does actually get easier, kinda, mm. you know, because it, it kind of because it's been happening now for the best part of eight years. Well, badly, it's been happening for the, the last eight years. Um, the small flashes that you have, which could be ending from, let's say five seconds to a couple of minutes and yeah. um, they they're kind of you get used to them um and they, they don't necessarily affect your, your mood so much but in the in the short term that that was the only thing that i got was short flashes but now the flashes can last up to anything up to 20 minutes 
That's quite a long time, isn't it? And you can get multiple flashes. So you can get like a, a two minute flash and you, you, you basically come back to normality to a certain extent. And then you sit and you know, you're kind of relieved and you light up a cigarette and then you're straight back into one. And sometimes that can happen for an hour. So it's kind of, yeah, it's it's really quite hard to not let it affect your mood. But, you know, I do try. Yeah. And it happens, I mean, the thing is, it happens every day. It's, it's mm. a daily occurrence. So, you know, there's there's no... Well, there is respite, but there's no... There's not a day passes where it doesn't an event doesn't take place so mm-hmm. that's pretty difficult and every day within within like a within a time capsule even if it's in like 20 minutes or an hour that's still quite that's still quite a long time as well yeah somebody once witnessed that uh, virtually most people don't know about it you know, especially if i'm out in public mm. um I'll sometimes see that I might have fallen asleep or uh, I may have fallen straight into rapid eye movement because I'm like twitching a wee bit mm. um, but they don't assume that's what it is but I have interacted with someone um, when I had a like in a 15 minute episode and I was able to interact with another person but that other person was um, one of the what shall I call them? One of the abusers. Ah. So I interacted with them as if that's who they were. Oh dear. <laughs> so it's quite odd. It can be quite frightening for other people. Um, so to a large extent, that's why I try and not. I know it's difficult, but I try and not have them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, it's Around other people, you know. Yeah. So, you know, with your, especially your poetry and this particular one as well, The Mirror Cracked, um, you know, it tends to, your poetry in general tends to have a no-hold-back approach and is incredibly raw as well. Do you feel by having this approach in your poetry tends to help you express and uh share your sort of experiences with PTSD and just life experiences in general, I suppose I should add. It's almost like part of the PTSD as well. For me, it's not an option to be diplomatic about it. Mm. Because as I say, it's, it's the, the history that created it is something that I've, as I say, buried for the best part of 45 years. Um, so when I'd plucked up enough courage to talk about it with a psychologist and also to um, to write about it, um, it, it, it has to be. It's almost like I'm forced into portraying it as it is. Because, mm. um, uh, I mean, there's still a stigma and there's still sometimes nothing serious is attached to certain mental health conditions mm-hmm. uh, kind of and, and that kind of forces me to write about it as it is I, I mean if you read any of my poems about PTSD or about bipolar then they're 
they tend to be um, no holes barred. For, for me, those subjects, honesty is the best policy. And the thing is, I don't think I could write poems about it in any kind of flowery or metaphoric language. Yeah. You know? I mean, I know the poem itself um, is quite metaphoric uh, in the way it describes things and the, some of the descriptions of it, but it's pretty much my rage or anger about the events that happened and the PTSD. So mm. sometimes there's a lot of poems that I've done about mental health that involves quite a lot of swearing, which I know turns some people off, but it's like... I'm afraid it's the way a Glaswegian expresses himself. <laughs> Seriously, it is. It's, it's like swearing's part of the vernacular, normal yeah. vernacular. So I do, so I do swear quite a lot. Although yeah. I, don't think, I don't think there's a swear word in the mirror, correct? There actually isn't, I don't believe. Yeah, which in itself is unusual, but there you go. And especially, I mean, you talk about, like, metaphor and stuff. Like, yeah. it's not over... You're, I mean, it's not even overly metaphorical either. I feel personally, just from reading it, I felt it was very laid on the table. If if I'm perfectly yeah. honest, it actually think, uh, kind of gives you a it 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 gives you an open window to it. Yeah. That's how I felt anyway. It felt like an open mirror, really. Yeah. You know, it invites it kind of invites you in to what it's actually really like. I mean, that's the feeling I got from the poem. Yeah. That's why I sort of felt that it was very raw, um, and it's and I agree with you. It's not incredibly over metaphorical. It's not flowery in any way. It is what it well, is. The, meta- the metaphor is the mirror. Yeah, that's the only but, metaphor that's in it, really. <laughs> well, although having said that, when uh, I, after I had my three amputations, because so, it was three one a year for three years. Um, the, the when I came back to the house with effectively no legs, then the first thing I did, and this is going to make me sound completely mental, but the first thing I did was I went into the tool drawer, which I have in a kitchen, believe it or not, went into the tool drawer, got a claw hammer, and smashed the two mirrors, the two full-length mirrors that were in the house. Mm. That was just like... And I saw that as normal, a normal reaction. Mm. So, yeah, so the, the mirror might well have, have had that kind of significance about it, you know. But I've actually I've written quite a few poems, but there's another one that I like called The Open Door, mm. which is more about um, effectively PTSD being seen as a demon. It's about images and ghosts and um, demons, kind of. So, yeah, I think this one's particularly raw, but I think other poems that I've written, there's there's quite a few strong metaphors on them, but as I say, they're usually always raw. Mm, they yeah, are. The best way I would describe, in fact, probably quite a lot of my poetry, you know? I think a lot of your poetry is raw. Yeah. Some would again, say... Some would say unsophisticated, but let's, you know, we know what, what, what I think about these people, so, yeah, well, sometimes get accused of that, I've been accused of that quite a few times. Well, unsophisticated or not, if it says something, it says something, doesn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah. I once well, I once compared them. Um, I think it was one. I, I sometimes do words of wisdom where I take a phrase and I switch it around and you know just do something different with it, like like famous quotes. I'm trying to remember. God, it's, I think it's, I've got mine kidnap. Um, I think I've actually lost the train of thought. Um, no, I've lost the train of thought. You need to edit that out because I'm, I'm trying to think of the because I've written a, 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 a phrase about PTSD. No, it's gone. It's gone. If I remember it, I'll go come back to it. Okay. There you go, Missy. You can edit that. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to mug me off, hey? Will you edit? Mm. Oh, dear. Right, okay, back to, the, <laughs> back to the plot. Now, we discussed this poem off-air, and you actually performed this poem at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Would you be happy sharing your experience reading this internal dialogue out loud to strangers, and how did you feel after performing it? Ah, it's just... Uh, I, I used to do performance poetry regularly in Edinburgh, which is a, has a great poetry scene. Um, probably for about four years, um, and to be honest, I, I tried various different genres of poetry that I'd written. Um, but and again, all all for trying to get a, a an emotional response. I've even mm-hmm. I've been actually booed off the stage at one point uh, for talking about a rather controversial subject. But anyway, um, the actual poem. The mirror cracked. Um, it was hard to see a dry eye, a dry eye, in the audience. So that to me says it works. Definitely. Um, so there was quite an emotional response by the audience, and you know when I had finished it, um, although there seemed to be this really weird, awkward silence because that was the last poem I was performing. Um, and you meant to say leave them with a laugh, but I thought, nah, I'm gonna turn things on its head, you know, and yeah. leave them in tears. So, yeah, I, but the thing was that there, there was that awkward silence, it seemed to go on for minutes, but it was only really about three or four seconds. And then part of the audience gave me a standard evasion for it, so that was really that was really an ego boost. It was a validation, if you like. Mm. So I had the, the, the a mixture of feelings about because it took an emotional, um, or it had an emotional cost for me performing it. Um, but that was balanced up by such a great response that they almost cancelled each other out. So I would recommend performance poetry for, for anyone. Anyone that can do it, do you know? Mm, yeah. Not everybody can. Uh, and now, to be honest, the, the, the situation is that I can't any longer. Um, not not in front of an audience. I'm trying hard to get back by recording poems, um, but there's no way I could. I think since I lost my legs, I lost my confidence for doing performance poetry. Because performance poetry is always visual. You see the yeah. you see the poet first. You know. 
and, and it bothers me that I might get a, a round of applause for a crap poem that uh, that I've written only written and performed only because I'm in a wheelchair. So you get lots of things like that going through your head, but I can't I can't physically do it. It's like nerves take over. I can imagine. Maybe one day you might come back through YouTube or something like that. That's a possibility. Definitely. I, but I don't. I don't think I'll ever do it in front of an audience again. Never. I'd but you never. You never. You never. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what I really loved at the end of the poem is how you describe looking in the mirror without any cracks. How every day is a struggle, but you muddle through it somehow. And even at the very end of it, you say, "I walk away. My reflection stays from the other." Se- side it stares still looking for love loves compassion and somebody who really cares now i feel this is a very human way of dealing with this disorder and speaks to me of a man who doesn't give up a good battle either (laughs) do you ever read this poem and think about how far you have come uh, reading the poem and you know recording the poem had definitely two distinct um, trains of thought attached to it. So it was doing it was a almost like a dichotomy of emotions. Um, so part of me realised how far I've come, although there are certain times where it feels like I haven't come far at all. Mm. Um, but you should have seen me seven years ago, or six years ago even, or even two years ago. So, you know, it's like, it's basically in the last couple of years that to a large extent I've, I've actually probably achieved the most, you know. But the counterbalance to that is that it almost makes me or I feel that it makes me more depressed or more likely to head in a downward spiral so to a large extent I try not to reread a lot of these poems yeah it's almost like I write them publish them and that's it Mm. so it's very rare I mean there's a lot of poems I do go back in and read um, mostly the funny ones and Sometimes the murder ones as well. So quite like writing them, but um, that, the, sorry, the dark, the, the dark and funny ones as well. The mixture, because I, I really enjoy doing that. But the the PTSD or the, the the childhood ones, I tend not to revisit them. I don't, I don't, I don't have a high opinion of myself in that how far that I've come. But yeah, I, I can see that I have making strides. Or sorry, I have making strides. That that's about the best I can say. I think I think really that's that's the the opinion that someone else would need to come to. Yeah, I can see I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's like when you when you said to me that that uh, or you referred to me as brave. To a large extent, I don't see myself like that. Nor a warrior, although I do write poems about being a warrior. Mm. Um, but the fact that I'm still here means that I'm still fighting exactly. at some level. 
the proof of the pudding is me still breathing. Because I, I think I think a lot of people tend to say that, don't they? They, um, you know, whether it's through poetry or anything or kind of art forms, yeah. you know, they speak about, you know, um, you know, they they've had all these things that were going on with them personally. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of artists tend to say like they don't realise there's 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 this uh, not there's there's like this they don't realise you know unless someone actually points points it out to them yeah. you know like there's this massive time span you know and you've dealt with all these things like you know as you do with life mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think, like, maybe from a poetic form, you know, I don't, like, I think a lot of people don't tend to realise how far they've come. Yeah. Until it's actually pointed out to them, like, you know, but you've done this and you've done yeah. that, you know, so I it's can... Not, in fact, it's not even just that. That is important and that's very true. But this is something that people in DU could try, right? So I, I go into the welcome pages on a regular mm. basis and the thing that attracts me to and, I, and I've, I've learned this through experience the thing that attracts me to reading someone is not a list of their poetic achievements or a list of their educational requirements or sorry not quite requirements qualifications and mm. um, it's comments like i'm not really a poet or I'm just learning, I'm just a beginner. And sometimes you go and read these people quite a lot. You go and read them and you think, bloody hell. That's so impressive. Mm. So you, you, to a large extent, I find that, that some of the poets that I really get drawn to um, are either intentionally or unintentionally self-deprecating. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very much the same kind of thing. Mm. You know? But you, you can do it. You, you can do it when you're in DU. Just try a couple. A couple yeah. of years. I tend to steer clear of actual people who come on and say, you know, I've got ten books published and, you know, I yeah. am I am the great I am, you know. Mm. I tend to avoid these people like the flake. Uh, I, I, I tend to look at content, like what people actually yeah. write, write about, and I'm like, bloody Nora. <laughs> Yeah, but like, some, sometimes I'm quite shallow. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. make, I make reserved judgments on on uh, sometimes types of people. Mm. Um, I, can, I can't deal with poetic arrogance. Yeah, that's not but I mean, simple. so it's kind of. I used to go to a lot of writers groups in Edinburgh, and there was usually only. You know, in a, in a crowd of 20, there was usually only about four or five poets, and the rest were short story or novel writers. Mm. And um, they kind of looked down on poets, mm. which, you know, I just think it's crazy. <laughs> it's like, I actually think poetry is... If poetry written well is very difficult to achieve, you know? Um, definitely, definitely, especially like for instance, um, obviously with this, like um, if you're talking about, you know, like obviously with uh, you, you know, you're talking about PTSD, 
yeah. you know that that would be incredibly difficult like i'm pretty sure it is incredibly difficult yeah you know because it's such a it's such a sensitive but raw subject you yeah. know um the last thing you really want to do is sort of question that or sort of look at it from a surface level you know yeah. that's what i mean that's what i mean by when I look at poetry, I look at the content, I actually look at what someone is trying to actually say. Yeah. So, yeah. See, I still have this firm belief that anyone can be a poet. Mm. And I know that's not a popular view. Yeah. Um, I, I remember that, that my, my daughter, when she was I don't know, between five or six, um, wrote a couple of poems. Now, if it had been written by an adult, you would have said, nah, maybe not so great. But the fact that a six-year-old had written them and a six-year-old had viewed them as poetry, um, to me, that was poetry. Mm. Um, and there was an attempt there to rhyme and an, an attempt to describe things, you know, even at that age. And yeah. I, I thought, I mean, I'm biased, but I thought they were wonderful, mm. you know? So, yeah. I think it is becoming a poet um, is as easy as letting your emotions out on one ink. Yeah. Um, and that, that I say it's easy. I mean that is that can be really quite difficult. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a good place to start. Mm. Right about what you know, because it sounds more genuine. Yeah. I've, I've actually read quite a few poems of PTSD. And um, there's quite a few of them that, that rely on the movie version. Mm. And um, I'll be honest with you, the movie version is so far, in my opinion, is so far from reality. Doesn't feel as genuine. Yeah. Mm. So there, there are certain, well, there are certain issues, I think, that, that are very, very difficult to write. If you haven't experienced them, now I'm not saying that you can't write about them. Um, but like for me, who, who's got PTSD, reading another person's poem about PTSD, it's almost like I can tell immediately. Mm. Either they they do or don't have PTSD, or to what level, because PTSD is all about levels. Mm. You know, there's there's you know obviously, it runs the full gamut from mild to severe. So, but it's quite it's quite easy to tell, unless one uh, uh, again what I would say is unless your your um, imagination is a, a finely honed weapon, which some people definitely uh, is that way. Mm. Um, I mean I, I write I write in the guise of murderers, torturers, torturers. I'm going to say that again. I write in the mind of um, serial killers, um, torturers. Um, I've actually written in the guise of women, of black people. Now, I know for a fact that it could be called out as being not as genuine as it might be. And I'm prepared to that kind of criticism because I've never murdered anybody. Well, not yet. Um, and I'm writing about 
a perspective that I don't fully understand. So, you know, so I, I do believe you can write about things that you haven't experienced, but it's just, I think you have to be on your guard that you don't come across as, what's the word? Um, insensitive. Yeah. Although I'd find it very strange why someone would want to write something that they don't experience, but... Well, a lot, a lot of poems are actually spurned by movies. Yeah. You know, people get inspiration from movies and from television. Um, and then they try and describe a person going through that, even though they haven't been through it themselves. Mm. It's quite difficult to do it. It's a difficult balancing act to, to try and get the emotional content out. That would take some level of... Oh yeah, to be fair, I agree. That would probably have to take some level of imagination to... Yeah. To get I, the feel of it. I, I think huge. I think mm. huge. As I say, you, you would have to be really skilled. Yeah. To write about an experience that technically you haven't really had. Mm. I think you can have an empathetic experience of caring for someone or dealing with a family member. Yeah. That suffers with either PTSD or any other mental health issue. So you, you can have a good stab at it then as well. Mm. But if you've got no experience of a, of a thing, then nah, you really have to you have to be someone special to make it work. Mm. Is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners? who may be struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder or anything people can do to be more aware and help at all? It's quite it's quite a difficult response. And again, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. Mm. I don't believe, let's say for a second, that for me, and I'm only talking about for me, mm. that it can ever be fully cured. I don't believe there's a cure out there, but I think there are certain therapies and ways of thinking um, that can help, and I can only talk about the ones that have helped me, because some of the therapies that, that, that I've been through have been of no help at all. In fact, one long sessions with um, a psychologist actually made the PTSD worse. Mm. Um, so that, and <clears throat> basically, a psychologist should, if they're worth their salt, warn you that if if you go into therapy for PTSD, it may initially get worse um, before it gets better. But they never offer a cure. That's the weird thing as well. So that kind of backs up what I think. Um, the one thing that works for me, or the one thing in the main that works for me is something that's been described as, um, God, I'm running out of my head now, distraction therapy. Um, and what that involves is, there's, there's not necessarily a lot of warning when PTSD strikes, but there is a certain warning when bipolar mood swings kick in. Mm. Uh, and there can be quite a, a long kind of, 
warning that the, you know that's going to happen. Yeah. So what you do is that you pick on a a a, a, a task that is mundane but needs your full attention. So basically, let's just say, for instance, I do things like, and I seem to be quite mad about this now, is um, kitchen cleanouts, like spring cleaning the whole kitchen, um, which obviously takes me a long time anyway. But mm. the thing is, you can be doing that for like about five hours. And because your concentration is in the task, which obviously is a mindless task to a certain extent. Everything else seems to get blotted out. Yeah. So the one thing that I've kind of worked out is that the more that I do that, so that uh, again I get I've got more involved now in physical activity and exercise and stuff like that. The, the, the certainly the, the 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 flashes don't tend. To happen as much when you're in the middle of doing that mm. um, and the only other thing that works is drinking copious amounts of alcohol but that's not to be recommended you know um, the thing is when you're drunk it doesn't tend to happen at all and I know the movies portray that as different mm. but if you're drunk it's almost certain to happen to a large extent for me certainly um, and I've stopped I've stopped drinking now totally um, well that's that's quite recent um, but alcohol basically knocks me out I become a happy drunk and then I pass out so I don't I don't I don't even remember having, having had um, post-traumatic dreams um, after a night of alcohol mm. but as i say i'm not recommending that at all in fact i've stopped doing it so there's the proof um, yeah. and it, it seems to go in waves as well you know you, you can be i mean you, it does happen every day but you, you can maybe just have like one or two episodes a day uh, which could be quite short mm. or you could have the the full-blown you know, nightmare, and then 10, 11, 12 flashes during the day, which could last in anything from up to two or three hours with breaks in between. So it's kind of, it may, <laughs> do you know the funny thing I always think about? It makes me an unreliable person. Like, I wanted to do some volunteer work. Because uh, again, it was part of this this, this therapy idea to yeah. ke- keep my mind busy on other things. And um, the problem was that I couldn't commit because I didn't know what state I would be in at any particular time. Yeah, it's my sleep patterns kind of messed up as well. So if people said to me, right, you need to come in and do three hours at nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning. When you God, you could throw a dice as to when I would turn up, or how I would turn up, or even if I would turn up, um, for various reasons. So, I'm afraid the volunteer work got um, pretty much um, knocked on the head. Mm. 
Um, I mean, I was a professional counsellor for the best part of 20 years, qualified counsellor. Um, so I do help individuals over certain mental health issues that, 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 I, that I've experienced. Um, so that, that I enjoy doing. Because you know, I think sometimes the thing that helps as well, and this is the other side of it, apart from the distraction thing, I think the thing that really helps is that you you really feel alone when it starts. Mm. And, and even if you hear around about that, you know, other people have it and, yeah. Well, you know, like you say to someone and they'll go, oh, yeah, my friend had that. Um, and I just think, I used to think, yeah, well, you obviously don't understand it. So, you know, so people, you if you know people who genuinely have it and you share your experiences, you would think that that might trigger you. Yeah. But it tends not to, for me. Um, and the thing, about it, the thing about the whole subject matter of therapy and um, what makes things better um there's no way you could give a prescription for that because, you know, I've got this really pet hate of, um, let's say, for instance, take something like CBT, right? Yeah. Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Yeah. That's a programme that's been virtually written for a generic or generic forms of mental illness. So what applies to to me, would apply to another person. Mm. Now, the problem I've got with that is I think that, that the various mental illnesses affect us all individually. It's, 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 it's almost has a uniqueness about it. Yeah. Um, I would rather, far rather that um, a psychologist listen to you and then try to tailor the kind of treatment that you get for your particular needs. Yeah, precisely, because everyone reacts differently exactly. and, respond, and responds differently. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about this earlier, Yeah. a couple of days ago, and that that's, it's so true among almost everything, you know, you think of drug treatment, um, that is so individual as well. Yeah, because bodies react differently too. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I, I think it's true of almost everything. You know, reactions are kind of unique and individual, good and bad. So it's like, you know, as I say, I really don't have much faith in generic systems of help. Mm. I think listening is more important than anything else. Mm. And sharing Just, mm. and realising that you're not alone, even if you are alone. But it's you know it's loneliness and, and being alone is not a good not a good uh, factor to be involved in if you've got mm. mental health issues. Um, yeah, that's a biggie. Um, but the 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 helpful thought process in there is that I've spoken to so many people now, but it's people who have the condition 
rather than just like the general population. And um, the feeling that there's no way I'm alone in this um, makes a huge difference. Oh, there's one thing which I did, I recommended at the the end of um, my last podcast interview with Missy. I don't normally read books. I know that's going to sound like a hell of an admission. Um, I tend to read books of poetry from all manner of people, um, but to a large extent, I don't very often go into the 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 long the long format, either novel or non-fiction. Yeah. But there have been a couple of exceptions. One has been of Mice and Men by Steinbeck. Yeah. Which is a wonderful thing to read, a wonderful book to read. Um, it's traumatic, but it's yeah, it, it's got a lot of wisdom in it. Mm. And the most recent book is a book called Twelve Rules for Life by a Canadian psychologist called Dr. Jordan Peterson. And I'll be honest with you, it's it's probably the only book that I've read. And again, this is this has been I've been reading it really just for. In fact, I'm starting my second read of it, uh, but I've been reading it for about mm-hmm. I don't know two two three months, mm. and it's it's had the most positive effect of anything that I've ever done. I can't recommend it highly enough, and I know that, that there's a wee bit of controversy about Jordan Peterson. Mm. Mm. But if if you stay away from the, the political side, the actual book itself has got nothing to do with politics. Yeah. It's, it's about personal responsibility and, um, you know, just basically help and advice of, of finding meaning in your life. Mm. Um, that has been a treasure trove. So I would recommend that you actually get the book or listen to some of these videos I don't agree with everything he says, um, but there's certainly so much value and wisdom to be mined out of it. And I'll be honest with you, I started reading that, and I think my my mental health issues have improved. Well, there we go. You've got two books to read, guys. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you'll find some men thing. I mean, I don't know if it's a well-thought-of book or not, but... I just like the story of it, the storyline of it. It's actually got a lot of, it's got a lot of layers to it. I studied yeah. it for GCSE coursework. Well, so did I. Not GCSEs, but O-levels. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had a choice of um, Shakespeare, the works of Robert Burns, or of Mice and Men. Mm. So, the, the previous two I thought... <laughs> Shit, I don't want to do then. But I was able to, to work through Steinbeck. It's a very intelligent book. It's really good because there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of, like, layers to it in terms of topics that are discussed in it. Um, I think I actually did that for year nine and then I had to do Shakespeare in year 10. I think I had to do Shakespeare in year 10. It's funny... So, one of the things that I thought about when I, not when I was reading it at sixteen, but I've I've reread it probably about four or five times, 
I think uh, the last time I reread it was probably about six or seven years ago. And I remember reading it with, with a new thought in my head. And the thought was, how many types of abuse, different types of abuse, are included in the, the storyline? Yeah. And there's so many. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You come back to you come back to it, and you actually take something different each yeah. time, or you see something different yeah. each time. That, that's why I reread things, and, and certainly, it's why I believe it or not. It's why I watch movies sometimes four and five times. Because mm. you think if you watch the movie, then that's it. You know what happens. Mm. But there are several movies out there that uh, <clears throat> I would recommend that you watch three or four times. Mm. Jacob's Ladder, for instance. Jacob's Ladder is actually good. Uh, the old one, that is, not the new one. Well, David, thank you for taking the time to share your journey and experiences with us today. It's been a delight having you on the segment, and it's always a joy to have a chat with you, big brother. Yeah. <laughs> as, I, as I call you, my wee brother, and I also refer to you as Pengu. Yeah, so. it's, no, it's not Pengu, it's Pengu. <laughs> Pengu. Pengu. Yeah. <laughs> I said that, but in a Scottish accent. I felt like you did it with an I, not an E. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, it's definitely Pengu. I know that. Okay. But you know what's funny? If, if I've always, I, I have some real soppy thoughts sometimes. <laughs> I think if you really like and respect someone, um, you would have a pet name for them. Yeah. I know a lot of people think having a pet name is kind of sugary and, you know, the first flushes of love. But, you know, the people I have nicknames for, or that I've developed nicknames for, are people I love and respect. So, here you go. You're a, you're a braver man than I am. And I say that with, I say it in all seriousness, you know. Mm. I have a lot of respect for you. As I do with you as well. Yeah. That will probably get edited out, eh? It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. <laughs> well, be, being too complimentary, you know, to each other. Mm. I suppose it comes to the territory. Yeah. <laughs> I, tr- I trust. I trust Missy. One hundred percent. You know, with with an edit, and she. I'll tell you what. She's one of the very few that I would trust. Mm. Um, to give a hundred percent fair edit. So. Yeah, she would. Yeah, definitely. Deep underground poetry. Hello and welcome to this poet cast spotlight. What? I hear some voices cry. Who is this usurper? Where is the suave, calm, and reassuring voice? of Daniel Christensen bringing the gift of another wonderful spotlight on some lucky DUP's poem. Well, to date, Daniel has done over a dozen spotlights, including on one of my own poems, and I felt it was time to return the favour as a way of honouring his wonderful contributions on the PoetCast project. So here I am, Josh, attempting to do justice by turning the lens on Mr. Spotlight himself. Daniel's four-and-a-half-year presence on DUP has given us over 90 poems, many with audio, 
and thousands of supportive comments made to grateful DUP members. Those who are familiar with his work will know he deals with everyday experiences from a deep cosmological and philosophical understanding. In this, I feel he is a poetic equivalent of David Bohm, who attempted to reconcile Einstein with Niels Bohr, i.e. the theory of general relativity with quantum mechanics. In other words, bringing it down to a poetic earth, how individuality best expresses its greatness with interdependence in the bigger picture of life. Now that is indeed a noble task, and one suited only to those who are both well-read and humble enough to admit when they don't know. A surefire way to generate new insights. Daniel's fascinating poetry has undoubtedly catalyzed many aha moments for his lucky readers. The poem of his that I have chosen was published on DUP in February 2018, and I shall read it now. Untitled My Life is a Village by Daniel Christensen Breathe Life and death are intrinsically entwined. In each inhalation there is the seed of each exhalation. Black and white beachheads of swimming tides and shades of livings and dyings. To see in one death, all death, eternal and separate, is a source of distress. To see in one life, all life, is also distress, to deny the ever-presence of raw birthing renewal. Breathe. Hands that reach into a bowl to grasp a fish continually come away with nothing. To die to self is to grasp there is no self. There is no definition of being. Moment to moment, only that which experiences livings and dyings. Hands, eyes, black and white stones in the waters. There was nothing to grasp. Shimmers of light, shadows cast over the bowl. Only motions of changings. Realize the bowl is the corridor of perception. Life itself is not contained therein. Breathe. Feel the constant vibrato of my instrument attuning. It is ungraspable moment to moment. Hear the steady sonata that is my unstoppable pendular voice. Sincerely, Arscoptoris. Note first the title itself, untitled My Life is a Village. This already encapsulates deep themes in his work. First, that of identity as an ongoing journey, alluded to by using the word untitled in the title itself. Second, that of individuality, my life, finding its home amongst the collective, is a village. And third, the use of consonants, those L letters in the words untitled life village bind together the otherwise disparate elements of the poem's title. So already 
the reader is being prepared to open their mind to new possibilities of understanding one's significance in the larger picture. This is reinforced by the photo above the poem, which is an archetypally shaped glass goldfish bowl with clear water in it, nothing else. The poem is divided into three parts, each preceded by the word breathe, which is a nice way of giving the reader a breather, a pause before delving into the next part. It is also a neat way of form and content reinforcing each other. The first stanza, which I shall repeat. Life and death are intrinsically entwined. In each inhalation there is the seed of each exhalation. Right at the start we have the opening gambit of the perennial human questioning of life and death. Often seen as enemies, Daniel immediately prizes open a door that they are possibly one thing, like breathing in and out, inhalation and exhalation, a natural process of exchange. It also acknowledges the religious recognition of the momentary pause between every single out and in-breath, a zero point where anything new can happen. However, when someone dies, it is on the out-breath. Is that it? Is there no new possibility? Daniel notes on the exhalation there is a seed, hinting at the possibility of new life, hinting at a natural process of eternal renewal. And we have plenty of practice. In the average lifetime, we breathe in and out about 650 million times. The second stanza, which I'll read again. Black and white beach heads of swimming tides and shades of livings and dyings. Tides, which mirror breathing in and out, expand the picture into nature writ large. The phrase, shades of livings and dyings, jolts the reader. It can be read in two ways either as a partial experience of what it is to live and die, or that both living and dying have areas that remain in the shadow or in darkness, i.e. remain unknown to ourselves. But this commonality of obscurity suggests a deeper underlying truth of oneness, of wholeness, the implicate order in the language of David Bond's quantum physics. The third and fourth stanzas use repetition with unexpected contrasts and similarities. I'll read the first two lines of each of these stanzas. To see in one death all death, and in the next stanza, to see in one life all life. The notion of seeing the all in the one applies to both life and death thereby reinforcing again what they have in common. It opens the mind to the idea that if there is good in life, there has to be good in death too. But how? I'll read both stanzas in full. To see in one death all death, eternal and separate, is a source of distress. 
to see in one life all life is also distress to deny the ever presence of raw birthing renewal distress one might obviously link to death and its association with the scary notion of eternal separation but then in the fourth stanza we have to see in one life all life is also distress why why is life at its deepest level associated with distress daniel gives us the answer in the second half of the stanza to deny the ever presence of raw birthing renewal we want life but life has to be constantly renewed and the implication of that is the necessity of the cycle of death and new life yet it is an uncomfortable necessity leading to a sometimes denial and yet we cannot have one without the other deep down we know this and still we react against it because something in us does not want to know something in us does not want to admit that the gift of life requires us to not just reluctantly accept this cosmic cycle but to embrace it which includes the gift of death the gift of the ongoing renewal of life is only possible if certain phases of life are allowed to and even encouraged to die away daniel gives us the second pause in the poem while we let the questions arising from part one sink in breathe part two also has four stanzas here is stanza five hands that reach into a bowl to grasp a fish continually come away with nothing the key word here is in the middle line of the stanza a clue from its pivotal position line four of seven the word grasp when we have an attitude of grasping of trying to nail life down it has the habit of slipping through our fingers we come away with nothing as daniel says perhaps contrary to the popular mantra of seize the day we should rather listen to life and hear its whisper i do not wish to be seized but enjoyed here is stanza six to die to self is to grasp there is no self there is no definition of being moment to moment only that which experiences livings and dyings here the key word grasp is used in a different context instead of in the sense of grabbing as in the previous stanza here it is in the sense of gaining a deeper understanding grasping the truth about something a much more gentle and humble attitude towards life using the same word differently is of course grist to the mill for a poet and daniel uses this poetic tool wisely i.e carefully placed for maximum effect and after this gentle encouragement to deeper self-knowledge there follows a crucial challenge concerning our precious notions around identity there is no self 
There is no definition of being. How we love labels and definitions. They give us a sense of security, of scientifically proven, of meaning. But Daniel challenges us to think beyond our comfort zone and sit with the question, what if? What if our essence is not an identified soul, but a node of consciousness, a hub of experiences, where living and dying are not labelled as different, let alone as enemies? Rather, we are part of life, and it is not our task to fix life, or even to examine life. What if our mission is just to experience life? Where life is a continual examination of us, moment to moment, as Daniel writes, and we are entities of livings and dyings, a phrase repeated from stanza two. We may be familiar with a saying attributed to the old Greek philosopher Socrates, which goes, An unexamined life is not worth living. In Daniel's poem, this saying finds its proper context. It's not us examining life, but welcoming life to examine us. And now to stanza seven, the longest stanza in the poem. Hands, eyes, black and white, stones in the waters. There was nothing to grasp. Shimmers of light, shadows, cast over the bowl. Only motions of changings. Everything is fluid, in motion. Yet the stanza starts off with five words that are at first sight considered solid. Hands, eyes, black white, stones. The word grasp now appears for the third time, as in the same sense in the opening stanza of this section, i.e. grasping, trying to nail down. But grasping what? Here Daniel uses a poetic tripwire. The words, shimmers, shadows, motions, changings, are all words which are by nature inherently ungraspable. You cannot hold them down. They are essentially experiences. And this begins to help the reader to accept the futility and resultant stress, I might add, of continually trying to insure ourselves against life's variables, often blamed on nature's vagaries. Technology which promised us stability amidst a fickle nature, has itself become just as fickle and is experienced as unreliable. But more important, such an attitude is a denial of the very nature of life itself. Life is inherently full of surprises and unknowns. And whilst the reader is in that somewhat precarious and vulnerable state of having the notion of fixity being challenged, stanza 8, the last stanza in part 2, opens the door to a reasoned way forward to put the reader's feet back on the ground. Well, just enough, that is. Here it is. Realise the bowl is the corridor of perception. Life itself is not contained therein. 
Interesting is the use of the words corridor and contained. The bowl in the photo is shaped like cupped hands, as in the shape with which one might kneel down by the edge of a stream to take a drink, forming a container, which implies fixing, controlling, appropriating. And yet the bowl shape acts, as Daniel says, as a corridor of perception, in which life itself is not contained, i.e., we can never be sure that any particular form implies a specific function. Cause and effect are at best only superficially linked, and often wrongly so, as the history of science has shown over and over again. Once more, the underlying message comes through. One cannot control life, nor fool it. So, in an ever-changing self-organising universe, which has its own evolutionary agenda, or in David Baum's words, a universe which has its own evolving implicate order reacting to human intervention, what is the legitimate role for us humans? Before tackling this closing question in the final part three of the poem, which has two stanzas, Daniel gives us another breather. Breathe. Stanza nine. Here it is. Feel the constant vibrato of my instrument attuning. It is ungraspable moment to moment. The reuse of the phrase moment to moment from stanza six reinforces the theme of the fluidity the non-fixedness of life. But in this and the final stanza, the context is music, sound. However, there is also a specific action going on. We are back in the first person again, used only previously in the title, as in My Life is a Village. The rest of the poem was in the second or third person. Now, as we come to the close of the poem, we are given an insight into the poet's own response. Again, we find the key word, in this case the word attuning, in the central line of the stanza. What else can we do in a universe forever in motion, in a universe singing forth with vibration, except to attune ourselves to the ungraspable? In Daniel's confessional words, feel the constant vibrato of my instrument attuning. This suggests the act of writing the poem itself has been a gradual attunement to the subtle movements of the universe. Like all art forms, the creative process requires us to attune to a different level of vibration. Is that it? Not quite. Here is the final stanza. Here the steady sonata, that is my unstoppable pendular voice. The more general phraseology from stanza 9 of vibrato of my instrument is now given greater specificity. It is Daniel's own distinctive voice, denoted in this poem as a sonata, which is a specific form with rules and limitations 
within which life can ask questions of us, at a level where we can make some headway in understanding. The word sonata, representing the unique voice of Daniel, gifts us an individuality best expressed within the greater collective world of music. What about the closing words of this final stanza? My unstoppable pendular voice. Can the word untitled now be removed from the title of the poem? Maybe. In the context of this poem, though, the word pendula is pure genius. A pendulum has a fixed point which allows it to swing back and forth, where the weight is free to traverse both time and space, swinging towards ying and then back again towards yang, an eternal balancing act of self-correction from extremes, like the inhalation and exhalation from the first stanza. It signifies a pattern, a repeating cycle, and even a slow winding down to death. But where is the pendulum fixed? Where is its fulcrum located? The poem would suggest that the fulcrum is located in the process of the raw birthing renewal, quoting Daniel's words from stanza 4, that the fulcrum itself moves to a new place, representing a new perception of how things are, from stanza 8. And this relocation reinvigorates and re-energizes the pendulum to swing again from a different centre, from a different perception. And hence, it is unstoppable. Daniel's voice and words again. This I found to be a great gift from the poem. From every shifting consciousness, the fulcrum from which we swing is relocated and gifts us with new life. And it is, and we are, unstoppable, as long as we keep moving on with open and discerning minds. Interestingly, the poem is signed off with the words, Sincerely, our sculptoris. A number of Daniel's poems are signed off in the same way. Who, or what, is our sculptoris? An alter ego? A subpersonality? A heteronym, like with the famous Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa? Who knows? But as poets, I reckon we all like to keep a little mystery surrounding us. It's part of being human in a volatile world. At the time of writing, what could be called a huge coarse vibration of COVID-19 is creating many nodes of uncertainty. And the whole narrative is trying to fix the location of our fulcrum, and hence the limited pattern within which we swing. I suggest we replace the negatively charged word uncertainty with the neutrally descriptive word fluidity. This takes us right back into the heart of Daniel's poem where a genuine response to transcend the panicdemic is to attune ourselves to the unseen yet faintly audible, ever-shifting, implicate order, i.e. that realm 
where all is interconnected and which underlies the explicate order of surface manifestation. Or, in Daniel's words from stanza 1, in each exhalation there is the seed of the next inhalation, without which life on planet Earth does not continue. And the seed always carries with it a relocation of perspective, a relocation of the fulcrum from which we swing, for a time that is, and then it is time to shift perception again, get re-energised and so move on in our lives with, in Daniel's great words, unstoppable pendular voice. It has been my privilege and an honour to turn the spotlight on one of Daniel's own poems. Next time around, the man himself will assuredly be back in the chair. And who knows, maybe you will be the lucky poet to have a poem of yours put under Daniel's insightful spotlight. Meanwhile, this is me, Josh, signing off. May the force of the muse be with you. Good day. Deep Underground Poetry Dot com He said he was a poet And I'm a sucker for a man with an aching pen And a knack for ink and wordplay He said he was a poet So I let him use me as his blank page Describe electric words on my fluid skin Oh, and he burned into me the stories he could only tell in his dreams. Oh, and he loved the marks from the fire of his silent muse. He said he was a poet, and he knew how to pick up the words I trip over when my tongue was in a tangle. He said he didn't know it. But I knew he could see right through me when I built up my stained glass skin. Oh, and the starlight prose crafted by the breath of his storyteller lips. We wrote of the melting hours in endless volumes and perfect synchronicity with his body vernacular till no inch of me was left unwritten he never liked to show it but the bittersweet taste of temporary killed the poet under his skin Oh, and he burned into me a story I could only feel in my dreams. Oh, and he left the marks from the fire he used up in me. He said he was a poet. 
But I never thought he'd leave an incomplete page with an unfinished story.